I'd like to start with what you call the intelligence failures. What interested me are not just failures, but failures where the intelligence agency itself was surprised. How do people who spend their, jo- their jobs thinking about problems get surprised? So what interested me is, okay, well, so where do failures of imagination come from? And I came to the conclusion that two things. First of all, if you can find people either inside or outside an intelligence agency who give coherent warning and get ignored, then you don't actually have a failure of imagination. You have a problem with the sociology of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Who's getting listened to? If you can find Cassandra's, why are some points of view excluded? Basically, I have this hypothesis that what surprises you depends on who you are. Welcome to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. How to make it, save it, keep it. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question. What it means to live a rich life beyond money. My guests share their practices, principles, and evergreen wisdom. I'm your host, Bogumil Baranowski, author, TEDx speaker, investor, and a founding partner of Seacard Associates, a boutique investment firm founded in New York City. Join me on this quest to unearth the wisdom of the ages. Hello, dear listener. If you're listening to this, it means that I decided to release two episodes per week for a period of time. In June, I had a record number of recordings. I recorded within two weeks as many conversations as I've recorded in the previous four or five months. And I decided to speed up the releases, and that's why you're getting two episodes per week. Enjoy, save them, cherish them, and when I catch up eventually with my queue, we'll go back to weekly releases. Thank you so much. If you're curious to hear more, don't forget to subscribe to my Substack. It's a treasure trove of articles, podcast episodes, and exclusive bonus content. A simple search with my name and you're in. Now, a heartfelt thank you for the wave of appreciation for my recent book, Crisis Investing. It's packed with a hundred pandemic-era essays that are both a reflection of the times and timeless in their wisdom. The book's warm reception has led it to grace the top position in Amazon's new releases. If you haven't yet indulged, I cordially invite you to explore its pages. And if it speaks to you, do consider leaving a cherished review on Amazon and Goodreads. Now with that, let's get started with our episode. My guest today is Milo Jones. He's a visiting research fellow at the Changing Character of War Center, Pembroke College, Oxford, and a senior advisor for geopolitics and technology at Arcano Partners in Madrid. Milo also teaches geopolitics and intelligence-related courses in the MBA program for IE Business School in Madrid and Imperial College London. Milo started his career by serving as an officer in the U.S. Marine Corps and since then has worked in finance in New York as a consultant in London and beyond. In 2013, Stanford University Press published a book based on his PhD dissertation, Constructing Cassandra, Reframing Intelligence Failure at the CIA, 1947-2001. In today's episode, we talk about Milo's eight years in the Marine Corps, the study of intelligence agencies' failures that come from failure of imagination, 
Milo discusses his work reframing those failures. He emphasizes the importance of quality of questions and diversity in analyzing complex problems. We talk about the big picture geopolitical situation and so much more. The mental models we examine can help make better decisions in all areas of life, including investing. What can we learn from intelligence agencies' failures? Please help me welcome Milo Jones. Hello, Milo. Nice to see you again. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And it's exciting to be talking to a Polish person, even though you're a Polish person in New York, because I'm living in Warsaw. It is unusual to speak with Poles who know America and who know Wall Street. So it's very pleasant. That's why I think we'll have some interesting ideas, questions, and, and a very interesting conversation. So I met you at Guy Spears Value X in Switzerland. And I found it really interesting as a place to meet because my journey, as you mentioned, started in Cold War Poland in 1980. Not a fun year to be born, and we'll probably talk about it. But I ended up on the Upper East Side, and that's where I spent most of my adult life. You, on the other hand, started on the Upper East Side, but Poland has been your home. I am a, for the, I am a Mark Avenue Christian church and a St. Bernard's boy. Uh, <laughs> so I have to ask you, about your childhood and upbringing and how you think that time influenced your curiosity, interests, and career that followed? Uh, well, as I said, I, I am from the Upper East Side and I had a very fortunate childhood. I was not born under under uh, Cold War, in fact, martial law conditions. Mm -hmm. um, in some ways, though, New York is, in my opinion, one of the most provincial cosmopolitan places on Earth. Um, my stepmother from the Upper East Side died at age 90-something, and she literally could count on one hand the number of times she'd been to a dinner party on the West Side. Um, and when, <laughs> when I was eight, we moved to my father's home state of Wisconsin, uh, and my parents continued to take the New York Times Manhattan edition because they preferred to get the Manhattan edition three days late to the mere Midwest edition of the New York Times that was coming out of Chicago and would only be a day late because they had to keep track of the, the weddings and the funerals and the, the you know the obituaries, etc. Uh, so New York, I, I feel a New Yorker, but I'm also, I've been outside of New York for so long mm -hmm. that uh, I can also admire it from a distance sometimes. Um, so we moved to Wisconsin when I'm eight, but we kept a, a summer house in the Hamptons And um, the best way that influenced me was we had no television out there. And mm -hmm. so I spent my summers reading. And I genuinely believe that that was an important part of my intellectual formation. The next important part was, because there were no schools in Wisconsin that my parents wanted to send me to, my sisters and I were sent away to boarding school. Mm -hmm. um, I left for all of high school at age 14. And uh, I was given... I was taken to eight different ones on the East Coast, and I frankly chose the one that uh, made my father the most angry. That was that <laughs> was the driver. And, and the other happy accident there was, and then I'll let you get a question in, but the, the really formative thing about that school uh, among men, mm -hmm. uh, I heard my father and mother talking about the school, and my father said, you know they offer Russian language, and I wonder who the hell takes Russian, my father said. And my mother said, well, you know, French is the language of gentlemen. Milo will undoubtedly study French. So because I was unhappy with being sent away, I promptly enrolled in Russian class. And 
my Russian teacher was a uh, former Marine officer. Uh, in fact, formerly worked at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. And so in some ways, uh, a lot of who I am and what I do now was very much formed almost by chance uh -huh. uh, as a result of that upbringing. I'm sensing some disobedience, being rebellious at an early age. Am I right? <laughs> well, yeah, yes and no. Um, I never had the nerve to do it properly, but uh, the school was a strict place and I was largely obedient. And the Marine Corps, of course, is not a place where disobedience <laughs> where disobedience gets you very far. So in that sense, um, I'm, I'm a rebel within limits. Um, I enjoyed, for example, in college. So this school was all boys. So uh, when I got to college, I went to Northwestern outside Chicago. When I got to college, I majored in art history um, because, frankly, I, I understood enough about comparative advantage to realize that art history classes would be 90% girls And I was, quite frankly, the only straight guy in the department. Um, and the Marine Corps didn't care what I studied. <laughs> They just said, get a degree. Uh, uh -huh. And I liked being the Marine in the art history department and the art history major in the Marine Corps. Uh, one of my first gunnery sergeants said, that's okay, sir. You'll know what to loot. And I said, Gunny, you, you can't say things like that. that. That's not how we're going to behave. But anyway, uh, all these things contributed to uh, who I am today. Well, you have to tell me about those eight years. Was it eight years in the Marine Corps? You mentioned that yeah, it was the, the most enriching experience of your life. By far. Um, so I'll qualify the eight years. It was, I did Naval ROTC as a Marine option. And, and so you're not a full-time Marine, but the summers are taken very seriously. So for example, um, one of the things I did one summer um uh, was the Army's Airborne course at Fort Bennett. And um, I started the course, scared of heights, and I finished the parachute course, even more scared of heights. I'm remain scared of heights to this day, but I, but I did successfully graduate from the Army's Airborne course. Um, and then, then I had four years of active duty um, during what we then called the Gulf War. We didn't know we'd be numbering them. Now I think people call it the first Gulf War. Mm -hmm. um, But overall, there were a couple of things about the Marine Corps that were exceptionally useful and that I'd still draw upon every day. And the first thing was, it really got me out of the world of the Upper East Side and the Hamptons and boarding school and art history. You meet an amazing cast of characters, people with, let's say, very different backgrounds from my own. And that was an enormous education and incredibly enriching. Um, also, It gave me a baseline of confidence because I think if you come from a lucky background, you always wonder how much you've earned and how much you've been given. Right. And the Marine Corps is definitely something you earn. And everybody knows that and mm -hmm. everybody feels that. It, it, it was the least racist, the least classist, the least discriminatory environment I ever experienced. If you, you were either a Marine or you weren't. And that was refreshing. But most of all, it convinced me that leadership can be taught and it can be practiced. And literally, you're constantly exposed to leaders, good and bad, and it is discussed. Mm -hmm. And uh, that forms such a firm foundation for you when you get out into the world, uh, so to speak. So, so I really, uh, I wouldn't trade my Marine Corps experience for anything in the world, um, although much of it was 
was uh, unpleasant at times. I feel like we'll come back to it in uh, the following questions because I sense that <laughs> this time influenced how you think, how you operate, how you make decisions and the career that followed. But I'd like to start with the what you call the intelligence failures. You write about it, you talk about it. Can you explain a little bit more how that happens? And we're talking about intelligence in terms of you know CIA and, and Secret Service, but it overlaps with how the investment profession works, collecting information, doing Absolutely. analysis, and then making decisions. Why do we fail? And how do we fail? What have you learned in the process? Well, when, when you come at the, the field of intelligence failures, you mm -hmm. start out with, there are a couple of buckets that, that past work fall into. There's the sort of blunders school, which I, isn't very interesting, frankly. Yep, somebody screwed up. Gosh, that shouldn't have happened. No theory is attempted. It's just failures. Then there's a whole body of literature about, well, there are these psychological biases, and here's how biases create failures. Mm -hmm. um, that's moderately interesting, but I felt was not complete. Then there's a huge body of literature about, uh, for lack of a better word, bureaucratic politics and how stovepiping and the failure to communicate within and between organizations contribute to failures. And I felt that that, that like the psychological approach, had some merit, but again, I found uh, incomplete. But the big theory that was favored, in fact, by the 9-11 Commission was proposed by a woman named Roberta Wolstetter. And it talks about this idea of signals and noise mm -hmm. and how intelligence failures stem from failures of imagination because mm -hmm. you almost always, in retrospect, had collected the information you needed not to be surprised. But because mm -hmm. of a failure of, uh, of imagination, you didn't interrogate the data correctly. And I think mm -hmm. in the investing world, If you do an honest self-assessment uh, of your good investment decisions and bad investment decisions, it's usually uh, a similar process. Mm -hmm. My frustration with that, however, because Roberta Wallstetter did that work actually in the 50s. She was married to uh, Albert Wallstetter, who worked for the Rand Corporation and was uh, quite involved in nuclear strategy and game theory and stuff. Very famous, rightly famous, bright man. But it was funny. Um, at the height of the 50s, she, he's out at the Rand Corporation. And she says, you know, Albert, I, I think I'd like to do a PhD. And he says, yes, yes, honey, go ahead. Um, what? Go ahead. You know, here's my colleague at Rand. He'll be your supervisor. And she's effectively left alone by this Air Force colonel for about three years. He says, what are you working on? And she says, I think I'd like to work on how Pearl Harbor happened. And he said, yes, yes, honey, go ahead. Left her alone. She finally <laughs> turned in her dissertation. And mm -hmm. three days later, the phone rings and the colonel says, Roberta, are there any other copies of your dissertation? And she says, well, yeah, there are two in my office. And he says, I'm sending over the military police. You do not possess sufficient clearance to, to have that document. Mm -hmm. um, that was paranoid 50s America. Um, she did, in fact, finally get permission to publish her dissertation. Mm -hmm. uh, and it came out with Stanford University Press as a book called Pearl Harbor, Warning and Decision, about five years after she finished it. And as I say, her big insight is that failures of intelligence rarely stem from failures to collect the correct information. They mm -hmm. stem from failures of imagination 
to ask the right questions of the data that you have or that everyone has. And you certainly see, if you look at a case like Enron, everything that was wrong with Enron was basically widely known by everybody who bothered to pull the right information from the Edgar system. What people differed on was the interpretation of how to treat mark-to-market accounting and off-balance sheet debt and all these other things. So sometimes failures of imagination matter a great deal. Let me get to my own work, though, uh, if I may. Yeah, please. I said, in fact, I picked Stanford University Press to publish my book quite specifically because I see my book, which is called Constructing Cassandra, Reframing Intelligence Failure at the CIA. Um I see it quite specifically as an addition to Roberta Wallstetter's work. Mm-hmm. What interested me are not just failures, but failures where the intelligence agency itself was surprised, not mm-hmm. failures where the CIA gives warning and people didn't pay attention. Mm-hmm. I was interested in, hold on, how, how, how do people who spend their, jo- their jobs thinking about problems get surprised and why? And failures of imagination is loved in Washington and other places because it's plausible. Indeed, mm-hmm. it's true. But there's nobody to blame. So, so it, has no, it has no sort of diagnostic value. What, what, what are you supposed to do? Imagine Harvard? So what interested me is, okay, well, so where do failures of imagination come from? And I came to the conclusion that two things. First of all, if you can find people either inside or outside an intelligence agency who give coherent warning and get ignored, then you don't actually have a failure of imagination. You have a problem with the sociology of knowledge. Who's mm-hmm. getting listened to? What questions are being asked? What questions are taken seriously? What perspectives are permitted or driven to the top of the analytic process and why? And that interested me. And I, of course, had to figure out, well, all right, where do, where, do the, where do those come from? If you can find Cassandra's, why are some points of view excluded? Mm-hmm. And I came to the conclusion that essentially they're rooted in the culture and identity of the individuals and the organization that's doing the information sorting. So you as an, you know, my mother used to ask, well, so what are you working on, dear? And I'd say, well, mom, basically... I have this hypothesis that what surprises you depends on who you are. And she said, Wait, I can't I like tell that. my friends. Nope, that's not very simple. You've been doing this for seven years. But obviously, this is why, for example, in the investment world, you'll see short sellers, first of all, are excellent at being selective contrarians. And they're mm-hmm. also good at packaging and explaining their hypotheses right. to the rest of the street to get a reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, short sellers are the sort of Cassandras in the investing world, and um, they're sometimes wrong, but they're frequently right. And I'm I'm interested in that shorting of questions and generation of questions process. I like that. I, I wrote down so many notes just listening to you. It's interesting that you mentioned Enron because uh, my first, uh, I would call it a job interview, internship interview with my future and now current business partner. It's- Francois Sicar, I asked him about Enron because this was the topic of the day. And I was interested in what you call failures, but what kind of investments should I avoid? I was curious how, what can I do not to lose money? And he found it so refreshing that this kid out of grad school is not interested in coming to the investment profession to make money, but he's more curious, first of all, how not to lose money. So avoid the failures. 
I mean, isn't and that talk- Charlie Munger's, you know, or Buffett's? Don't, 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 don't lose money. Don't, don't lose, lose money. money. And and he, he found it refreshing. And I was just you know, a naive, curious kid coming out of grad school, curious about how he avoided Enron. And he simply said the numbers didn't make sense to him, and he, he walked away. They read the filings that you talk about. They didn't make sense to him. And they, they walked away from it. They never participated in Enron. But the interesting thing is that I, I remember sitting and pitching my first stock in New York in a Manhattan office, and I was looking around, and I n- noticed that the second oldest person was twice my age, and I was the only person not born in the U.S., not educated in the U.S. And I thought, everybody around me has pretty much the same view and opinion, and and I'm bringing a whole different perspective. And, and I didn't see the... I, I think I grew to appreciate the value of it over time, being different in that sense, being the only person outsider yeah. in the room. But I think I came with a much wider range of outcomes in my head already recorded. I saw bank runs when I was a kid. I saw hyperinflation. I saw an economic shift from a controlled, centrally planned economy to a free market economy. So the things that we're seeing in the U.S. now with bank runs, a lot of people know bank runs from books about the 1930s. I actually watched them live in person. So I think bringing a wider range of outcomes to the table, and I think that's one of the things that you talk about, who is invited to the table and whose perspectives we share. Is is that where you're going with that? It is. Um, of course, I was most interested when writing the PhD to, first of all, understand the phenomenon. But of course, mm-hmm. people always want a practical, action-oriented uh, conclusion, which mm-hmm. I really only did after the dissertation. But one of my, uh, if you will, fashionable conclusions is that, let's face it, diversity is a moral good and it's something that we all seek for its own sake. In, a, in addition, however, it can also be somewhat, frankly, uh, to be a pain in the ass uh, to have a diverse analytic team. But because culture and identity so drive many of the fundamental question asking processes, they're actually vital when looking at complex problems. There, there's, a, there's a wonderful article called God Gave Physics the Easy Problems. Um, <laughs> and many people in finance actually think they're doing something scientific because look, there are numbers involved. So it must be like an engineering problem. Um, when in fact, it's a human problem. It's a social science problem. And therefore, Who's asking what questions from what background really matter? So yes, your lived experience as a poll will influence how you approach investing. But it's exactly why I urge mm-hmm. all organizations to, anytime there's a, a difficult problem to look at, the more diversity the analytic team, the better. Even though that can create friction, it comes with its own set of problems. If I had to, I, I am a value investor, but if I had to critique the American value investing community, it would be, well, look, culture and identity matter. It really also matters, however, if you're an investor, to understand that buy and hold worked beautifully in the two Anglo-Saxon countries that Mm -hmm. won the Second World War. That's right. Buy and hold did not work beautifully for the residents of Germany, Japan, Romania, Poland, Italy. That's right. France. (laughs) Russia, etc. This idea that you can cut and paste mm-hmm. assumptions about rule of law, protection of minority rights, etc. Cut, mm-hmm. cut and paste so much of the software of 
American financial markets and apply those thought processes to countries, say, like China, I just think is, is laughably naive. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to give a more concrete example, for most of human history and in most cultures even today, the idea, if you have a job to give, the idea that you would seek the most qualified stranger to get that job is just, it's not just strange, it's actually immoral. In most mm-hmm. of the world, if you have a job to give, you give it to your idiot brother-in-law because that's what good family members do. That's what a moral person does. And so a lot of how we think right. about transactions and capitalism mm-hmm. are not obvious and they're not human nature. They're flowing from a particular set of cultural traditions that I admire, I'm grateful for, mm-hmm. but are not universal. They're, they're learned. You're touching on so many interesting things, and I keep writing more notes and, and have more questions. But I, I fly small planes, and my instructor told me that you know there's nepotism, because I think that's what you're touching on in many yeah. professions. But you wouldn't let somebody fly a plane that you're in just because you're, they're your second cousin, and you like them, right? You want them to be a competent pilot first. And, and I think there's well, some that, professions. That's, that's true, although remember, there was a tragic case of I'm Russian sure there crash are. where the uh, where the pilot invited uh, his daughter up to sit in the sit in the seat and uh, we know that from the voice recordings but uh well things like things to say happen. it didn't end well uh, things happen things but, happen but, unexpected yeah. things happen but yes most of the time and and really I I mean the pilot analogy is a good one brain surgeon brain surgeon is another one I, I would tell you please go see Bob, because he's my cousin and I really like him, he would say, what, is he a good surgeon? It's my brain. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, if only people treated the, the, some of their pharmaceutical choices the same way. But uh, that, there, there's true. an interesting case study about it actually helps sales of drug dealers when they poison their clients. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I wanted to give a master class for, for, for uh, IE where I do some teaching on uh-huh. uh, on innovative marketing strategies like poisoning your clients if you're a drug dealer. But um, for whatever reason, they felt that was inappropriate. I think they were right, honestly. But uh, I have a high tolerance for dark humor. It gets the message across. The other thing that I wrote down, and I think it applies in uh, for intelligence agencies, but investing too, is that the actual decision at the end, you can't really have a committee make a decision. I, I was part of some committees invest in the investment world, and you need a one decision maker. Well, you have Buffett and Munger, but it's really Buffett that makes the decision, and Munger is is um, a sounding board and somebody that has a veto sometimes, but it's really one decision maker. And I think it's really important to see it this way in the investment profession, at least from my experience. But having said that, the voices that are not in the room are the voices that will not be heard. And I think there's something about it. So you might collect the perspective and the analysis from many directions and fill in all the spots you might be missing because you're, because of your own experience and your own life path. But then at the end of the day, you, you have one decision maker that says go, no go. And I think. Right. A, would you a agree good analyst, that? though. In my opinion, a good analyst, whether it's an investment analyst or an intelligence analyst, is not the decision maker, usually, mm-hmm. but their job is ironically to make the decision harder, not easier. Mm-hmm. Because it's exactly to 
expose the final decision maker to the full complexity of the problem. And I must admit, sort of A-level decision makers get that. Mm -hmm. B and C-level decision makers want staff work that makes their decisions easy. And I think a better set of questions and a better investment process includes someone asking themselves, what can I learn that would make me change my mind? Mm -hmm. And then have we considered that? And that's where I, I frankly, what a lot of what I teach is the application of structured analytic techniques from the intelligence community for use in business and finance, because the intelligence community frequently doesn't have the luxury of dealing with problems that can be fully quantified. And so they've developed a toolkit to do analysis of qualitative rather than just quantitative problems. But in the same way that you and I learned to do division, essentially, by externalizing the problem, meaning writing it down, 2,588,682 mm -hmm. divided by four. So you, you externalize the problem and you solve it in steps using a very simple framework, a sideways L. Similarly, there are techniques to externalize and analyze, to break up. Mm -hmm. That's the Greek word, of, root of the word analysis just means to break up. So the intelligence community can give investment professionals um, a set of structured analytic techniques to, to get all the voices heard, give an audit trail to your analysis, mm -hmm. and account for things that can't yet be fully quantified, mm -hmm. but are still important so that they're all these risks that can't appear on the spreadsheet still appear in your decision-making set. Um, if you want a, a good free resource for that, it's a bit of a, 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 um, a chest, old chestnut now. It's, I think it was declassified. It was written in the 80s and declassified early in, in this century. It's by, by Richard Hewitt, uh, and it, it's a CIA manual called The Psychology of Intelligence Analysis. It's sold on Amazon. But don't buy it because you can Google it and get a PDF for free because government publications can't have a copyright. Your tax dollars paid for them, so they're free. So you can quite easily get a copy of the Psychology of Intelligence Analysis, and you'll find some really good techniques in that to have structured, careful analysis of problems uh -huh. that either can't yet be quantified or can't ever be quantified. Uh -huh. I'll look it up. That's an interesting publication, and I'm glad that the taxpayers' money went somewhere productive and <laughs> we get to use it. I want to ask you about uh, diversity. I had two guests on my show, Ellen Carr and Katrina Dudley, who are two very successful investment professionals, and they wrote a book, Undiversified, and they share their observations about the fact that the investment profession is one of the least diversified when it comes to gender. And you mentioned Roberta and her unconventional wow. approach to, to study and research and adding a lot of value to the process. Do you have some thoughts about making uh, investment profession, your profession, many professions more open with more diversity of voices and not just gender, but, but ages and across the board? I, I do, but my, my first <clears throat> caution would be that uh, American approaches to diversity Mm -hmm. are are eccentric. I mean, America's 4% of the world's population with about 23% of the money. So we are quite strained globally. Mm -hmm. Right. And our approach to diversity is also quite strained because in particular, we don't tend to admit to class. Mm -hmm. 
So we'll say, oh, this is a diverse group. Look, we have an African-American, we have a Latina, we have a woman, we have an old person, we have a young person, all of whom are probably upper middle class or middle class and educated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, that's a pretty bad proc for cognitive diversity. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, speaking another language mm-hmm. is vitally important. And it's something that American intelligence does poorly. Uh, and certainly, I, I can imagine that there are very few requirements that if you're covering, say, Brazil or Latin America for a particular investment bank, maybe you speak the language, Portuguese for Brazil, Spanish for much of the rest of the continent. Um, maybe you don't. But can you really seriously analyze a culture, a society, etc., if you don't speak the language? I'm skeptical. So diversity takes many forms and simply having the right shade of pigmentation or whatever in a picture or the right gender is not a perfect proxy, but it is better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, when I'm teaching in business schools, for example, I urge all my MBA students to actually visit a real slum in the third world. Meet a few people who genuinely live on $2 a day and he did not grow up with running water. And then imagine that two and a half billion people live that way now. I mean, Chinese people studying the future of China, they go to Shanghai and they go to Beijing, etc. But I don't think that's visiting China. It's like when I meet Europeans who say, oh, I love America. And I say, where have you been? And they say, oh, New York and Washington and San Francisco and Chicago. And I say, that's great, (laughs) but when are you going to visit America? Uh, there actually used to be some graffiti as you'd cross the George Washington Bridge. America starts here. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're in this information bubble. Uh-huh. And if you're going to understand China, you, you got to get out of Shanghai and Beijing and so on. And uh, meet the 650 million Chinese who live in an income level of Bolivia or below. That, that is China. Mm-hmm. Sucks at Shanghai is not China. Indeed, it's deceptive. So uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a fan of area studies, as it's called uh-huh. in the military and the intelligence world, than I am of learning elaborate models from political science to apply to investing mm-hmm. uh, or, or intelligence. Mm-hmm. But I like that idea to just go and see. And I've had so many conversations with people, whether in New York or in London, who were investing through their firm in some very exotic places. And I thought, oh, you must travel a lot. I know that you travel a lot, Milo. And they said, no, I've never been in whichever African country it was, but they're buying debt of a cement company in that country they've never been to. And they never visited the facilities or never met even the management of the company. And I always thought, the risks that you think you see on paper and not the risks that you talk about that you might be completely ignoring because you are unaware of them. And, uh, yes, uh, Americans single... actually believe if they have a piece of paper that they own something because uh-huh. that's been entirely their lived experience. I, I, in my classes, I offer a thought experiment. I, I tell my students, you, you, you've been given $6 million mm-hmm. and you're, in, you're buying an apartment in Manhattan for $2 million, an apartment in Beijing for $2 million, an apartment in Moscow for $2 million on Monday. Mm-hmm. On Tuesday, which apartment is most valuable? And they'll all say, well, they're equal. And then they'll talk to me about, well, you need to understand the Chinese economy is this and the rest of it. And I say, no, actually, you, you don't. Are you sure you really own? Can you really <laughs> be sure you really own 
mm-hmm. Americans are touchingly naive mm-hmm. about what the law is for, what paper hand, and let's put it this way. In most of America, we may not love taxes, but even right. if your brother works for the Internal Revenue Service, mm-hmm. you're going to pay taxes. And even if your brother's a sheriff, the odds are pretty good. Most of the time, if you commit a crime, you're going to usually, you're going to get prosecuted. Right. In much of the world, again, that, that's just not how the world mm-hmm. works. Uh, there is a lovely naivete to being rich and powerful and at peace for roughly two centuries, largely at peace for two centuries. And a huge, huge advantage. You pointed out the elephant in the room, which is the property rights. And it's a topic that's really abstract, I noticed, for Americans, because what do you mean? I have a paper that shows that I own it, I own it. And I grew up in Poland, and Poland went through a massive transformation. And my parents ended up buying a little bit of land that we built a summer home on in the 90s after the transformation happened. And we were enjoying lunch one day, and somebody walked up and said, how are you enjoying my land? And it paused our lunch, and apparently we bought it not from the actual owner. We bought it from somebody that f- claimed that they own it. And it wasn't really you know, a crime or anything. It was more of the fact that the land, the ownership, was not pr- pr- properly sorted right. out. And, and there were very conflicting you know, records of who owned the land. And there were two right. great-grandsons of somebody, and they both thought they owned it. So we ended up settling with that person, and it was not not a meaningful amount. It was just a, a little piece of land under a small summer home. But it taught me a lesson, and, uh, <laughs> and I overheard many conversations. And since then, when I hear people buying some uh, property in exotic places, I'm always curious, you know, what, what do you think you bought and what you actually bought? Uh, it, it, even, I think it's called the cadastral register. There, there mm-hmm. are several European countries that I'm not going to name where, where there's no, still no proper cadastral register. You can't mm-hmm. really be sure who owns certain property. So I divide the world into their markets. There are a few markets where I can actually buy and own something without seeing it. Mm-hmm. Then there are markets where I can buy and own something if I'm there. Right. So I, if, I, if I can go there and I live in that place and can watch it and be there, fine. I, I'm pretty mm-hmm. confident I own it. And then there are places where you can never be sure you own any, um, where effectively so. the party or the king or the czar uh, truly owns everything, mm-hmm. and you can find yourself without goods. And, and that's why um, I, I mostly only invest in the United States. In fact, I entirely only invest in the United States and Europe. Um, I'm sure there are attractive opportunities in many places if I could go there and be there and watch a productive asset, mm-hmm. but I'm not willing to own it secondhand. Uh, and I'm undoubtedly think, missing out on some big opportunities. But as you say, the first rule is don't lose money. I think missing out missing out on, on opportunities is just fine as long as you have the ones that work for you. But it's a very powerful statement coming from somebody that has seen and lived in many parts of the world that you choose to own only in the U.S. and Europe. And I don't really differ with you on that. I feel very comfortable owning assets in very few places on Earth. And maybe because I... I, I for the avoidance of doubt, I, I would own it. Excuse me for interrupting. I would own in Taiwan and I would own in Japan. A handful I, I believe a handful I can actually own things in Taiwan and Japan too. 
Um, but it's, I think it's a very powerful statement coming from you since you've seen the world, if you've experienced the world and you know what it means to buy something and not really own it or lose it, you know, properties being confiscated. And that happened in Poland in 1946 after the World War II when big land was taken over and most businesses pretty much were taken over. It's very hard to explain to an American the fact that there was no meaningful private ownership of businesses in Poland until 1990. My uh, wife is Polish, and she, uh, our, I, I'm actually on the board of a seventh-generation family business, which for mm -hmm. an American business is a pretty old business. Um, the first Milo Jones started it out in Wisconsin, long mm -hmm. ago and far away, 1830s, settled the land. My Polish wife reminds me that as lovely as it, as it is when we go, she said, my grandparents lost everything three times mm -hmm. in the 20th century because they lost everything when Poland, uh, during the First World War, and then mm -hmm. during the Second World War, and then under communism. Each time, mm -hmm. everything wiped out. Um, you, you don't have to build bunkers and buy guns the way many Americans think <laughs> you do. However, um, a little taste of paranoia comes from a knowledge it's, of history. Or just um, knowing that there's a wider range of outcomes. I think that's, that's a way to look at it. And it's interesting, the topic you touch on, because at Seacard Associates, we manage family fortunes. And some of the fortunes we manage have been around meaningful for you know, two centuries, some of the legacy relationships that we have. And I've been with the team 20 years, but my senior partner since 1969, so a long time. And I think I gravitated to this uh, small subsegment of the investment profession because I was very intrigued by keeping the money much more than making it. I thought the making part will follow, but the keeping part. And I think it's shaped by my childhood experience and by, by Poland's experience that Losing, making a fortune is one thing, but losing it again and again and again is a theme. So yes. what can we do not, and, not to lose it? And, and in this case, I think the big topic is the location that I was hoping we can talk about as well at some point. But if the location is poor, like Ukraine today, you can't win this, this game. It will be taken away from you. Uh, right. So Annie Duke, the famous poker player, reminds people that the most important decision you make as a poker player mm -hmm what table you decide to sit down. That's and right. when, I, when I think about investments, I first ask myself, am I going to sit down at this table? And the answer is, I, I need a long track record of rule of law and relative geopolitical security. So when, when we talk about my investments is one thing. I do, obviously, I own my house in Poland and I'm happy to own a house in Poland, but um, I, I, I'm careful in other respects. Uh, well, Poland is a very different country than it was when I was born in 1980. In, in a way, when I go visit, I feel like I don't recognize it. It's a different place on earth. And <laughs> I've been here over 10 years and it's changed in that time. But we both need to remember there's never been a better time in the last almost thousand years to be Polish than the last 30, uh, arguably. Uh, yes. Uh, are you trying to say it's been the last 500 years to be Polish? Uh, it, are you trying to say it's been too good for too long? No, 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 not at all. I actually, <laughs> I, I'm reasonably bullish on okay. on the future of Europe and the future of Poland. Um, is an interesting place, and it, it, it's actually I had my 50th birthday here and invited a large number of people from all mm -hmm. over the world, and I was told afterwards that it was uh, the happiest surprise many of them have ever had. 
as a, as a place to visit. They had not known what to expect, but they mm -hmm. liked it. It is a remarkable place with wonderful people, a lot of potential, and I'm very happy to see that it has changed and improved so much in my lifetime. I'm 42, and I have a following question to you because you're watching the big trends in the world, and I noticed that the first half of my life, the world was opening up. The walls were falling, the borders were opening up. Poland was really shut down uh, completely from, shut off from the world until I turned 10. But it's not, not just Poland, all of Europe, so many countries joined the EU, NATO expanded uh, global trade. I mean, China boomed for the next few decades, starting a bit earlier than Poland. But it was more of an opening up and creating more connections and more opportunities. In the last five, 10 years, I can't ignore it, but I see the opposite trend. And, and maybe the war in Ukraine is a culmination of something and the tensions in, in Asia also. What's your perspective? Is it a cyclical thing that we're about to see the turn more into more opening? Or is it a, a longer turn in the direction we wouldn't want to see? Do you have a take I, on that? I, I do have a take. I fear for a variety of reasons uh, I can expand on that we're entering an era of quite durable disorder. Mm-hmm. And um, that, and we're really right at the very beginning of that period. And whether you know, if you if you look at free movement of goods, free movement of services, free movement of capital, and free movement mm -hmm. of people, right? Uh, I would not expect any of those to improve measurably on a global basis. I'm soon. That their 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 bilateral deals are still possible. Multilateral deals within blocks are possible. Mm -hmm. But uh, durable disorder is here to stay. Geopolitical risk is here to stay. And all the investing and economic consequences that come from opening and closing and things in between will, will be with us, I believe, for the balance of my natural life. You think so? It's... I fear I do. I, I think the key is to learn to profit from disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it feels like it's a darker period. That's how I perceive it, especially with the conflict right next to Poland. And historically, it was really Poland that was always the battleground, whether it was from the east or the west, or even the north, Sweden visited. Right. No, no, sure. Yeah, before the Scandinavians rebranded, they were called Vikings, and they were rather um, rather difficult. But yeah, the great north, the deluge, I believe it's called. Uh, absolutely. Um, don't live on the Central European plane between Great powers would be my first piece Absolutely. of advice. The, the um, only mountains are in the south, but on both sides, east and west, uh, they're just rivers easy to cross. But I mean, something to think about. I'm, I'm certainly trying to be more optimistic, and I'm, I'm thinking that maybe it's a, a darker moment before the dawn, that the, there will be a change or a shift. That's what I'm hoping for. Because I had a very optimistic few decades of my life seeing the world really flourish and open up. And it, it was a very inspiring time. I was part of different conferences, borderless Europe, and all kinds of events. And we were coming together from 30, 40 nations in Europe before we didn't really know each other because of the borders. And we couldn't really see our neighbors and people were visiting from all the countries that were freed from the collapsing Soviet Union, from Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and coming to visit. Nobody in my family has interacted with people from all those different satellite countries. So it was fun to see and talk and exchange notes. I talked to kids from former Yugoslavia that lived through the conflict and they shared with me what it was like. My parents and I actually traveled to Greece in 1990, right when things were opening up and we loaded up our little Fiat. You might know what a Fiat is, a tiny little car that was made in Poland at the time. 
And we, we drove along the coast. And in Yugoslavia, you could already feel the tensions at the time. My parents yeah, picked up on it much more than I did at the age of 10, but they shared with me later. So they could tell that the conflict was brewing. But I'm certainly hoping that there's some positive, uh, happy and uh, quick outcome in, in, the U in Ukraine that we can move on. But uh, you're not cheering me on here. <laughs> um, no, no, look, the collapse of the Soviet Union was not an event. It's right. a process. Mm -hmm. And it's been a violent process. We thought it was peaceful. But this is one more war of Soviet collapse right. and should be viewed as that. Um, I very much want mm -hmm. Ukraine to win. I very much much want Russia to understand that um, uh, we we are entering a post-imperial time. I would remind you that neither the, the British nor the French, after the Second World War, gave up their empires without fighting too. Right. Um, they didn't suddenly say, oh, the Americans were right. Uh, we, colonialism was bad. No, mm -hmm. no, there, there, were, there were wars that continued about 20 years into that process. So we're seeing that. But That's not where the disorder comes from. Mm -hmm. Where the disorder comes from is the spread of profoundly powerful digital technology uh, that mm -hmm. I call the three grain technologies. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a, it's a nonsense acronym that some of you learn in the military. Come up with an acronym to remember things. So three grain are general purpose technologies flowing from digital computing that are going to turn not just business models and industries upside down, but cultures and identities and politics upside down. And the three grain stands for 3D printing. Uh -huh. um, 3D printing, among other things, upends the idea on which the Industrial Revolution is based, which is if you make thousands of the same object, the incremental cost goes down. Right. 3D printing means no incremental cost to customization, among other things. It also mm -hmm. means As soon as you can 3D print auto parts in every garage in Brooklyn, you can 3D print AK-47s in every garage in Brooklyn. So 3D printing is big. That's the three and three grain. Then you've got genetics. And that's everything from three-parent babe to wonderful rice that will grow in, in brackish water to customized medicines. And that's all driven by Moore's Law and Computing. So 3D printing, genetics, then the R is robotics. Obviously, we know automation is having a, an impact on many industries. Then there's artificial intelligence. We could spend the whole hour talking about chat GPT, et cetera, if we wanted to, but we won't. Obviously, it's going to have an impact. Mm -hmm. Then there's the Internet of Things, which is uh, providing the data mm -hmm. for this computing. And then there's nanotechnology or material sciences, which is get, not getting as much attention uh, as it should but is also being driven by digital instruments. Now, each of those in isolation would have profound economic, financial, um, social and cultural and political effects, but they're not in isolation. They're coming at us like a wave. And if you mm -hmm. want, you can add blockchain and quantum computing, which quantum technically isn't digital, but it's driven by advances in digital. So we are really at the very beginning of that change, and I'll prove it to you. Here's how. When a new technology is introduced, we tend to use the old vocabulary to describe it. Right. When the radio came out, the British called it the wireless telegraph because it's like a telegraph, but it doesn't need wires. Uh -huh. And when automobiles arose, they were first called horseless carriages. That's right. Have you got your phone with you? I do somewhere. Yes. 
I'm holding my so-called phone up. I don't uh -huh. know what the hell this is, but not telephones phone. <laughs> are attached to walls and they do voice, okay? Uh-huh. <laughs> and hearing. This is a computer. This is an encyclopedia. This is a movie camera. This is a lot of things, but it's sure, we're still calling it, calling it. If you want to understand the impact of automobiles and you called them horseless carriages, you weren't going to understand the impact on even urban design. Mm. Similarly, if you're trying to make sense of the impact of digital devices and you're still calling this a telephone, mm. you just don't get that we're in a new world. We really are in a new world. I um, like that. And, and as I say, that's going to feed all the institutions that were created under analog conditions, mm -hmm. governments, schools, et cetera, everything you want to name, financial market. They were created under analog conditions, and they're going to be under pressure under digital conditions. Um, and think of the printing press. It's as big as that. As you mm -hmm. know, Gutenberg invented the printing press and around 1450. And then Europe entered a period of roughly 250 years of peace, love, and joy, right? Mm -hmm. No, Europe <laughs> entered the wars of religion and 250 years of savage, <laughs> the end of feudalism, the wars of religion, etc. So Disruption. changing technologies change identities and cultures. Uh -huh. And we're right at the beginning of that. You know that you're you touching on some... Uh, no, no, we're, we're married. We don't have kids yet. I'll give, you, I'll give an example for listeners who, who uh, have kids. Uh -huh. We all went to analog schools. Uh -huh. Analog schools are all set up the same way. You, they ring about, you're sorted by data manufacturer. Everybody sits down in a room and someone comes in and they ask you a question. And if you get the right answer, you're smart and you go to the next grade. And then someone else comes in and asks you questions and you get the right answer. And each uh -huh. time you spend 12 years of your life thinking, fetching answers and memorizing mm -hmm. answers to other people's questions makes you a smart person. Siri, when was the Peloponnesian War? Alexa, what's the capital of Mali? Right? Uh -huh. In the digital age, the quality of your questions is far more important than your ability to, mm -hmm. ask, uh, to answer other people's questions. And therefore, if you have kids, every day you should be asking them when they get home from school, not what grades did you get? It's, did you ask any good questions? And the odds mm. are good. They'll say, oh, we're not supposed to, or I'd get in trouble, or I'd look silly. Mm. But the level of change that's going to be required by our societies start with really fundamental things like that. What's a school for? What does an educated person look like? And how should we be training the next generation to cope with the capabilities of the technologies that exist now? Mm. As you know, I, I spend a semester a year or try to at Oxford, and I encountered a, a guy there who's a theologian who asked ChatGPT, write him a sermon on the importance of only drinking good wine. And within 10 seconds, it did it, complete with biblical quotations and so on. Remarkable. And then he said, all right, deliver the same sermon as if Donald Trump had written it. And it changed it and used words like bigly and stuff. But uh, the democratization of creativity is just one uh -huh. isolated example mm -hmm. of one of the three grain technologies. But they're, they're coming at investors like a wave. And uh, you've got to find ways to profit from disorder because the disorder is just starting. I love this. And uh, you compare fetching data with 
asking quality questions. I think that's that's a very powerful image because I went to schools in many countries and uh, there are big similarities, some differences, but a lot of what people are praised for is, do you remember the dates, the names, the numbers? But then in real life, it's the quality of questions that can save you from trouble or get you the opportunities you're looking for. And that's well, very you're, hard you're back to, to teach. Fair, if I may say, you're back to failures of imagination, where we started. Exactly. You're back to this idea that the quality of your strategies and the quality mm -hmm. of your lives and the quality of your investments mm -hmm. ultimately depends on the quality of your questions. If you get the questions right, your answers will be fine. But most people, most of the time, spend a lot of their lives fetching answers to irrelevant questions rather than thinking deeply and asking good questions, mm -hmm. um, which is really, you have to almost structure your environment to do that. And uh, you it's, need to get skilled with historical analogies and historical precedents. It's uh, very hard to look ahead 10 years. You better look back 200, in my opinion. History. Uh, History can teach you a lesson. It's very hard to teach it, the quality of questions. And it's hard to evaluate that kind of work, both as a manager, as, an, as a client. I notice because with remote work these days, when people are not watched, and it's not about time span, but the outcome, and the outcome actually at the end of the day is the quality of questions that were asked. The plumber that goes in and knows where to touch, what to, which screw to tighten, you know, that's the kind right, of quality right. of work that's delivered. I think there's a huge challenge these days with companies, managers, executives, all the way to clients knowing, how do you even evaluate if these were the right questions to ask? And it's even harder to teach that. It's, it's almost that it is, higher as I, as intelligence. I say, ideally, we shouldn't all be covering our, our backsides, but some of these structured analytic techniques that the intelligence community uses actually at least give you an audit trail of your thinking mm -hmm. to, to, to say, here are, the, here are the hypotheses we considered and excluded. And by the way, obviously, you're seeking to disprove rather than prove hypotheses. And then they're very good at thinking about the importance of absent evidence and asking yourself, if this hypothesis is correct, what else would I expect to see? And do I see it? Uh, in the intelligence world, this is also used for deception planning. So the British were trying to convince the Nazis that there was a whole army still in the, in the northern UK getting ready to invade and D-Day was just a feint. Mm -hmm. One of the things they did was place over 600 fake wedding announcements in British rural newspapers in the <laughs> six months preceding the invasion. Because if there's one thing the Germans would understand, it's, wow, if, if there are a lot of troops up in northern England, they're going to, they're going to be wedding enough. So, so you're constantly asking, if this is true, what else would I expect to see? And do I see I like that. that? Kind of a secondary or even tertiary way of looking at the problem, not a, just the immediate. Right. It's, it's about the diagnosticity of evidence. Mm -hmm. and the diagnosticity of absent evidence, taking absent evidence seriously. I know we're a minute away and you have a hard stop. I just had one question for you about your definition of success that I love asking my guests. So if you have a 15-second answer, I'd, I'd love to hear it. My definition of success is making a meaningful contribution to a constructive cause. Um, and all those things can be debated, but uh, I think 
their commercial value and their guardian value. And you started this conversation with where do I come from and what formed me? I really am in some ways more comfortable with guardian values, but I would suggest that the right investment approach for the world we're entering almost relies more on a set of guardian values than mere commercial values. Mm -hmm. Price and value are not the same things. And remembering that and making that the foundation of how you live your life and how you serve your clients, I believe is very important. And that's how I'll end. I love it, Milo. Thank you so much. This was such a wonderful conversation. And I know we could have talked for hours more, but you have to run. So thank you again. You were listening to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question, what it means to live a rich life beyond money. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and follow, subscribe, rate, and share with friends and family. We rely on word of mouth to promote the show. One click for you means the world to us. Thank you. Until next time, your host, Bogumil Baranowski. The content of this podcast is for general informational purposes only, and so are the opinions of members of Seacard Associates, a registered investment advisor, and guests of the show. This podcast does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any specific security or financial instruments or provide investment advice or service. Past performance is not indicative of future results. More information on Seacard Associates is available in its Form ADV disclosure documents available at advisorinfo.sec.gov.